Gracious God, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would encourage us and challenge us, that you would grant us clarity, not just in who you are, but in who we are and who you have made us to be. Lord, we thank you, and we pray these things in the strong name of Jesus the Christ. Amen. In the book, Transformational Discipleships, the authors write, the distinguishing mark of Christian discipleship is a transformed heart, transformed affections. And then they illustrate. When I, Eric, was in elementary school, I craved McDonald's. Often I begged my parents to have a McDonald's hamburger for dinner. If someone had told me that a day would come when I would have the freedom and resources to eat McDonald's every day of my life, I would have thought you were describing the new heaven and the new earth. McDonald's every day sounded like pure bliss. But my affections changed. In college, I had two taste-bud-altering experiences. First, while visiting another country, I was overjoyed to discover a local McDonald's. However, after devouring lunch one day, including the lettuce washed in unpurified water, I became very, very sick. My stomach was in an upheaval for 24 consecutive hours. And with each hour, I lost more and more of my appetite for McDonald's. When I returned home and drove past the McDonald's, all desire was gone for their burgers or fries. I was actually repulsed by what I formerly craved. Second, someone took me to an expensive restaurant and introduced me to prime steak. Until that moment, I was unaware that there were three distinct grades of steak, select the lowest, choice the next, and then culminating in prime. Less than 3% of all meat carries the distinguished and well-deserved title of prime. When I first tasted a prime filet mignon cut of meat, I knew eating McDonald's would never be the same again. It has been nearly 15 years since I've eaten at McDonald's. I'm not anti-McDonald's. My taste buds have just radically changed. I now have no desire for what I thought was the apex of culinary delights. What I once loved has lost its appeal. I love now what I once did not know. Granted, I still could eat McDonald's, but it wouldn't satisfy as it once did because I have tasted something better. In many ways, that's what I want us to explore a little today and then during this season of Lent. This, this idea that our affections, that our appetites, that our attractions can change. That we can learn to want something better and more than what we currently desire. As we grow in our discipleship, as we follow Jesus, we are learning to love God more than the things of this world. We start finding God more worthy, God more valuable, God more desirable than everything else. And similar to the McDonald's steak story, there are two pieces of that deeper change. First, we need to learn to love God more and bigger and better 
But then second, we need to learn to love less some of our older and worldlier desires, such that, again, we want God simply just more than we want these other things. And that, that isn't easy. And I think it can happen as we really come to know God better. I think that's part of what we need to do is because we aren't trying to make God more appealing. God is that much better, way more than that, actually. But we are trying to see and hear and feel and experience all the ways that God is already better, which then starts to change us. We have to be the people who allow our hearts and then our lives to change so that we can come to know Him better and then value Him more. Which brings us to our series. Some of you started this series at our Ash Wednesday service this past week. The rest of us will begin it today because it may be helpful for us to take a deeper look at someone who actually is living this out, someone who has lived this out, someone who had a heart that wanted God more than the things of life. And so in this new series, we're looking at the person of David who was known as a man after God's own heart. A man after God's own heart. And it strikes me there's two different ways you could interpret that phrase, a man after God's own heart. The first is that David's heart took after God's heart. It was, it was built of the same stuff. It was built in the same way. It feels the same kinds of feelings. It desires the same kind of desires. It's the same kind of heart. But then another way we could interpret that phrase, uh, a man after God's own heart, is that David's heart chases after God's heart. David longs for God. David loves God. David pursues God. David follows after God. And as we think about both of these, and as we started talking about on Wednesday, that's not how I think most of us would describe our own hearts. Because, of course, our hearts are often disheveled and distracted and distant. Our hearts are often too busy with our own stuff. Our hearts chase after all of our other loves. And this may help us understand a little of our lack of faithfulness sometimes, our inability to follow as well as we ought. In Psalm 63, David says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. When David is in a desert... What he really thirsts for and seeks out first is not water, but it's God. There's something about David that just longs for God. Which brings me to the question beneath this series, could we reset, even reorder some of our loves? such that God carries a greater gravitational pull for our hearts? 
Could we learn to love God more, especially in this Lenten season? And so as we get started on this, I would invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16. Uh, it is early in your Bible. I believe it's after the Chronicles, before the… Uh-oh, no, after the, before the Chronicles, before the Kings, 1 Samuel, um, after Judges. Uh, while you're turning there, I'm going to remind you that Saul is currently king of all of Israel, and the, that Israel is brand new into this whole monarchy thing. That this, this just happened. Saul has become king, and that's kind of a new thing. We're kind of living into this new reality. The judge, the prophet Samuel, was the one who appointed, anointed really, Saul as that new king by pouring oil on his head, and really a special concoction of oil. And in so doing, Saul was made king. Alas, for the last couple of chapters before we're reading, we're focusing on David, not Saul, but the last couple of chapters of 1 Samuel, Saul has continually turned away from God, been more focused on his own needs and his own desires, and, and he's been seeking to honor his own name, and he's been a little less concerned with God. And because of that, God has rejected Saul as king, and God is going to choose a new king. A person who, as 1 Samuel 13 says, the Lord has sought out a man after God's own heart and appointed him leader of his people. So let's see who that's going to be. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. 
So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you, and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, Find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. And Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Amen. All right, let's go back through these two stories. Old Testament, I always feel a little bit more need to make sure we're understanding what it is we're saying. We're going to spend a lot of time in the first, a little bit in the second, and then we'll see what all this means for us. God has told Samuel that his next mission is to anoint the next king who God has already chosen. Samuel is a little apprehensive about this particular mission because, of course, kings don't like it when the person who gave them their authority then tries to give that same authority to someone else. In other words, if, if, it, if it was Samuel on God's behalf who made Saul king, it's also Samuel who can then take that kingship away unless we get rid of Samuel. And, and so there's a little bit of danger here in this mission. That said, God has a plan. Throw a sacrifice, a party, a celebration, invite the whole village, make sure you invite this particular family, and then when I give you the nod, go do your thing. And because it's God, the plan goes according to plan. The elders are a little bit apprehensive about someone like Samuel coming around. He did just kill a foreign king in the last chapter, um, but hey, it's a party and he brought the meat. So who's really complaining? Let's do this. Uh, Samuel finds Jesse and Eliab, Eliab, his firstborn son, and Samuel's quest is over. Surely this is the guy for the job. He even looks the part. But Eliab isn't the right one. And the same for Abinadab, and then for Shammah, and, and then for numbers four, five, six, seven, and none of them are the right one. Something has gone terribly wrong. God said it would be one of Jesse's sons. Here are seven sons, seven the number of perfection. And so obviously there's been some kind of mistake here. Jesse, do you have any other sons? No. Well, I mean, I mean, there's the one in the, in the field, but the baby brother's out there, but that doesn't count. I have these seven sons. Pick one of these. These are the good ones. And you'll notice at this point, the baby brother isn't even named, sort of just forgotten, unwanted, unnoticed, uninvited. 
Samuel has him sent for anyway, and everyone, including us readers, sort of have to just kind of wait. We still don't know who this is. We're just waiting for him to show up. When he finally does, Samuel has his answer, and Israel has its next king, or at least it will, once the current king is no longer sitting on the throne. It's also worth noting, even at this point, that while God is very clear that it doesn't matter what someone looks like on the outside, it's sort of funny, our narrator is still all caught up with all of these same external outward metrics. It doesn't say, wow, and David just seemed like a good guy. There were some really good things going on inside of him. Our narrator says David is glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. That said, of course, based on what God told Samuel earlier, it's not any of this outer life that impresses God. It's, it's something on the inside. It's his heart. And this is what I want us to talk about in just a moment. But let me just finish the recap first. Because David is finally identified and named and called and anointed and then filled powerfully with the Spirit of God. Samuel leaves and we come to that second story where we find God starting to move different people into position. Because, of course, this is still Saul's story. He's still the one on the throne. I mean, David has been anointed. He's on deck, but he's not king yet. He's still an outsider. Frankly, he's still out in a field watching sheep. But then we see God start to go to work, moving him and moving some of the pieces, and all of a sudden he's in Saul's court and maybe we can see God, kind of one of the ways that God works. Suddenly, David's got a front row seat to, to all the statecraft and warfare and politics and, and everything else that goes on inside the throne room. Maybe more than that, it's David who, in a way, brings God back to Saul. And as we'll see when we get there, maybe that's what he does for the nation as well. For our purposes at this point in our series, I simply want us to take a deeper look at David's heart. And, and I want us to begin to do a better job of trying to assess our own. Because at this point, the one thing we know about David is that there's something about his heart that God approves of. He thinks about God a certain way. He feels certain things about God. He desires and pursues and, and chases after God. And maybe more helpfully, this means that his inner person is directed towards God. His, his inner person is filled with God. And that's not to say that David doesn't have a lot of other things going for him. I, I mean, he seems kind of like the, the classical Renaissance man. He, he's a musician, a warrior, a poet, a shepherd. He's about to be king. He, he looks good. He speaks well. He's brave. He's got some kind of charisma going because everyone seems to like him. Everyone finds favor with him. But again, the much bigger issue is about what's on the inside. He loves God. He listens to and follows after God. He's called by God. He's filled by God. And again, at this point, we only see glimpses of this because God talks about him this way and, and in how others interact with him, but David doesn't do anything at this point in the story. <coughs> but what's on the inside will more and more start to show on the outside as he starts to live into and out of his calling. 
There's so much we don't know at this point, but from the hints in our passage, we can tell that David is special. But I would maintain that part of what makes David special is also available to us. Part of what makes David special has already been given to us. But therefore, I think it's worth spending a moment focusing on our heart and our mind. We may need to do some some examining of the current state of what's going on inside. We might even need to, to turn around a little bit or change directions, if you will. Because David is a man after God's own heart, which makes it worth asking, what are the different things that occupy your heart and your mind? In a given day, in a given week, in a given year, what are the things that are important to you? What are the the topics that are just living in your head? that cause you extra concern, that require extra focus? What are the the subjects, the different subjects that take up differing amounts of your time? And this isn't a ranking. This is just Lent 1. We'll, We'll get to some other stuff later, but this is just an initial read, an initial assessment. What are the various kinds of things that you dwell on? And where does God fit in to all of that. For David, as we'll see, God seemed to be his main thing. God is who David is focused on. And that's not to say that he doesn't do a lot of things, but his focus seems to be on God most and first. And then everything else flows out from that. I think Maybe more often than not, we do it the other way. We focus on everything else first, and then from there we flow into our focus of God. I open up my to-do list first and think about all the issues I need to deal with. And then from there, I say, God, I need help. As opposed to starting with God and then flowing into those other things. As we see, David is called, David is anointed, and then David is filled with the Holy Spirit. But as we'll also see, God does the same thing for us. As special as David is in the Old Testament, This just becomes the language of our faith in the New Testament. Because of what Jesus has done, 1 Corinthians can say, now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set His seal of ownership on us, and put His Spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Because the good news is that God has chosen us, that God has anointed us, God has sealed us, and God has filled us with His Spirit. 
God has come to us and then invites us to follow after him, to join him, to enjoy him. Maybe we need to learn who he is better as we come to love him more. And I'll close simply with this. It's something David wrote. David once wrote, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would out... Number the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. If only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. If you would join me in prayer. Lord God, in this Lenten season, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls, that you would stir in us a new and deeper love for you, that you would reveal yourself to us, and as we, as we catch glimpses of who you are, we would come to know you more and love you better, because you are worthy of all praise, because you are worthy of all of our best thoughts. And so, Lord God, we pray that you would be moving in us and through us, that we might be a people after your own heart as well. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus the Christ. Amen.